1: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. So the ghosts out in the hall, the pain Good
2: morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on Voice America Variety and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Talia Furman. She's author of Love Your Body, Eat Smart, Get Healthy, Find Your Ideal Weight, and Feel Beautiful Inside and Out. Uh, Talia is a graduate of Cornell University with a degree in nutritional sciences. She contributes to Vegetarian Times, Veg News and Psychology Today. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Talia. It's wonderful to be here. Well, a little bit of your background, because you're the daughter of Joel Furman and some of our, our our listeners probably know your dad, doctor and best-selling author of books like Eat to Live and Super Immunity. So you grew up in a family where eating well and nutrition, obviously, was very important, um, and you had some understanding I would, of, of nutrition and um the influence that it has on one's body, but you yourself, even given that background, got into some trouble in adolescence, which many of us do, and struggled with your self-confidence, body image, etc. So I'm assuming that's what led you into the work that you're doing
3: now and
2: the book that you just wrote.
3: Absolutely. My whole life is pretty much why I wrote Love Your Body, meeting friends who also had body image issues health issues migraines stomach aches cramps during their periods just stuff that's not life-threatening serious diseases but yet health health issues and then yes knowing that there were solutions and knowing the science behind it and also blocking myself in my 20s and overcoming my own body image issues and the conclusions that I came to and the inspiring wisdom that I, I always loved to read and I've always loved to write. And I knew I'm I'm definitely more of an introvert than an extrovert. And knowing that writing was the answer to help everybody in my life understand the knowledge that I have to live a better life. And then writing a book also gave me such an opportunity to help as many people as possible. So Love Your Body is definitely a product of, it started out with nutrition, my nutrition background, and I find the science. Of nutrition, absolutely fascinating. I think I would be a huge fan of my dad, even if I wasn't his daughter. It's just, I guess, we share that genetic passion for just taking care of our health um, and enjoy. It's it's just an art is making healthy food taste absolutely delicious as well. So I take.
2: I have to time. stop.
3: It. I'm going to stop you right here because nutrition, obviously,
2: is high up. It seems to me on everyone's list, and you know, as you know, there are so many books out there about nutrition, and yet. And you, I look around, and I travel a lot, and I just came back from San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, So then in all these, you know, major cities, and I'm looking at people, young people, people in their 20s, 30s, and let's say even 40s, they do not look healthy. They do do not look like they are adhering to any kind of a diet that would be nutritionally Healthy, uh, and you know, even in in places, you know, I'm, and I'm talking about middle class people in in hotels, nice hotels, etc. Let's talk about that a little bit because obviously you have a lot of experience with that. Um, are we doing? What, what, what is our problem as a culture? It doesn't seem to me we are paying attention to our nutrition.
3: Right. It certainly begins with the desire to be the healthiest, uh, best version of yourself. So it's. Uh, health. Health is really. Um, um, it begins in your mind. Everything starts in your mind, right? Your psychological health, body image issues, and taking having that drive to and the confidence to know that you deserve to be healthy. That's the, that's where that's the base of the health pyramid is knowing that you can do it. Um, it's not as hard as you think, and nobody is going to love you like you love yourself. But it's also true that we absolutely are what we eat and if you're not taking care of yourself it's going to show up on the outside and when on the flip side if you do take care of your health your skin will glow you'll you will find your ideal weight and you're going if you eat the right foods. you're going to look like you eat the right food and you're going to look absolutely amazing. And so, and then when you, when you look amazing, you feel more confident in this loop and it brings you up higher and higher to reaching your happiness potential as well. So that's why I also think that there's so many fad diets and everybody wants to lose weight and they want to do it quickly, but it's not sustainable. Most fad diets don't last. People gain the weight back. Let's figure out, how to make this a lifestyle, so that way you feel motivated to take care of yourself every single day of your life, and also enjoy the foods that you're eating and not feel deprived. So the ba- it's it's important to understand nutrition, just so you know why you're eating the foods that you're eating and why they're so good for us. And that's fascinating. I took um, the sci, I took you know really boring scientific articles, and I kind of translated them into a really fun way of writing about it. And I absolutely, I have so many other interests in my life. I incorporated, you know, my love of movies and and books and references and just my, my, my way of making this fun. That's all in love your body. So it's not boring. You can pick it up on any page and learn about, let's say, why health, like what, why nuts and seeds are so, Important for our brain health, or why berries are like magical foods in the real world. We're really designed to eat them, and and how they. But how do we their get people to actually do that? Because I think your book absolutely, uh, you know,
2: explains the reasons why and what the outcome is if we do eat well and we do take care of ourselves. And our skin is better, and our body parts are better, and, and mentally we have a better sense of our mental health. But it seems to me that. We can understand that, but actually getting us to do it is a difficult thing. I know one thing that you say, celebrate, appreciate your body, no matter the shape or the size. Well, can you appreciate your body if it's like, if you're really overweight? I mean, is that a good thing? Let's say you're, you know, 50, 75 pounds overweight. Are you supposed to appreciate your body? Or, I mean, how does that, how do we reconcile, what do we do? Because there are so many people who, start off just being plain overweight, even if some people eat good food, but they eat too much of it.
3: That's right. Everybody's different. And it's also true that, you know, if you are eating unhealthily and you do start out with a lot of weight to lose, you have to start somewhere. This is where you are right now, and this is where self-compassion comes in. You're probably not at your happiest, right, because you're overweight, you're not looking very well, and you're also probably not feeling very well. So taking that information and having the the courage to understand that you don't have to live like this um, and nobody's going to take care of you like you're going to take care of you. So, Let's let's start in your mind. Feel good about your mind. Feel good that this isn't gonna last forever, and that you can actually do this. And we are creatures of habit as well. We we like to simplify our lives. We like to grab and you know eat the same foods every day just because we're busy and this is what we're used to eating. And we, you know, that's why people are overweight is because they pass fast food restaurants and it's just really convenient. Um, but let's make healthy food convenient and let's. Let's change our habits so that way we're used to eating healthy foods. And all of that information is in the book. It's a lot to cover in, in an interview, but I, I want people to understand that if I can do it, anybody can do it. All of my friends can do it. Um, and there's no, it's not hard. I love it and. Were you ever really
2: uh, overweight? Because you talk about that difficult time during adolescence. Even though you grew up in a family that obviously was very much aware of of healthy eating and what it does for you, when you were going through your adolescence, because I think you know obviously adolescents do struggle with with body image and weight gain. Um, were you overweight? Was that part of your problem, or just eating bad foods, or you know a little bit of your own story would be helpful to us too.
3: Absolutely. The funny thing is that I was not overweight at all. I was actually too skinny. I was very athletic, um, but I, I was too, I was think the ultimate perfectionist who tries too hard. I, you know, was a teenager. I was playing tennis four hours a day. I was homeschooled studying all the time. I was that girl who wanted to do everything perfectly and have a perfect body. Um, so this was me at my worst and I've changed dramatically since then, um, and I'm much more laid back, but that was pretty much what I went through. I absolutely loved fashion, and I would read fashion magazines and look at the beautiful models, and they were, you know, so, they were so, in my mind, like, they had beautiful legs, they were all these pretty fashions, and it made me feel bad about my athletic body, and I wanted, let's say, a flatter stomach or, you know, skinnier thighs, whatever it was, I just would look. I, it's. It wasn't a true eating disorder, but it. And it, I didn't have anorexia, but you can compare it to anorexia in that sense, because I didn't see my own body properly. Almost anorexic. Was, what I said. Almost anorexic. Almost. Almost anorexic. Yes. Uh, yeah. I. I was borderline anorexic, and so that was. That was in my teenage years, and I. I, you know, just during, You know, you can eat healthy foods and still have an unhealthy way of seeing your body. So I, then, as I grew older, I understood that I'm in control. And if there's one thing you can control, it's you know, eating healthily builds your confidence, um, and also under giving yourself more compassion about the way you look is a form of self-love. And so the first three chapters of Love Your Body actually aren't about nutrition. They're about positive psychology and pretty much gaining control of your life. And I cover what that, like, everything that encompasses taking care of yourself and also loving your friends and loving the world around you. So Okay, well, really...
2: that's one of the things I wanted to talk about because I think this is critical too, and you just kind of touched on it, but the whole thing about, you know, loving yourself, loving your body, loving who you are, which kind of encompasses all of those things, but you also talk about if you're surrounding yourself with people who aren't supportive, toxic relationships, for instance, that you have to let go of those and... And grow new ones that's key also so the lifestyle you're living is important right absolutely
3: having friends who want the best for you and treat you like they would treat themselves with ultimate kindness and you know enjoy you want to have fun with your friends but you also need to make sure that they're supportive of your decisions to live a healthy lifestyle you don't want to go out with friends are pressuring you to eat the junk food that they're eating and are making fun of you or making you feel bad. I also have, I've met people who are just Debbie Downers. They are negative and they don't see the world in an optimistic way. Those are also toxic friends. People who are friends with you for the wrong reasons. There's so many types of friendships that you shouldn't have, but then there's also these absolute gems of people that are the best, most priceless gifts of your life are your close positive relationships and how to how to develop them, how to cultivate them, it's all in the book. So in other words, you're saying
2: in, in the book, and I think this is one of the key points, at least it was to me, is that it's not just nutrition by itself. The nutrition and how you eat and what you eat and the way you conduct your life is all part of a, a... I guess a slice of the pie, probably I shouldn't use the word pie, but it's like you have to have, you know, as you say, supportive friends and and I would imagine be somewhat comfortable in the work that you do and it all kind of ties together or otherwise you're not able to kind of achieve these good healthy eating habits.
3: That's right. And I do have healthy pie recipes in the book. (laughs) Okay. So you need friends that are like healthy pie because they – They're just delicious (laughs) uh, for your life um, and they just add pleasure to it in a healthy way. So yes, it's, uh, it's amazing. Um, They've done research, so much research on the health benefits of having close supportive relationships and how your brain chemistry changes when you see somebody who's really close to you, or it can, it can be a close friend or family member. It can be an animal just, um, you know, it, there's, um it's basically like eating healthy foods is your lifespan actually increases when you have these close supportive relationships, and it doesn't have to be a ton of people. Um, you know, I, I would say it's definitely quality versus quantity in this case.
2: What do you do, Talia, when you have, um, and we're talking uh, to Talia Furman, author of Love Your Body, Eat Smart, Get Healthy, Find Your ideal weight and feel beautiful inside and out, what about when you see these, and I'm going to say it, just, you know, these kind of, not kind of, but fat families, you see really healthy, unhealthy-looking parents with two kids who look just as unhealthy, and let's say they're under the age of 12, prepubescent, so you've got a whole family system there, it seems to me, that isn't working. Is there a way in which to um, encourage or get these families to eat well, because obviously, the, the parents aren't doing the right thing for the children.
3: Yeah, it, it really, it's it's very sad. It breaks my heart when kids are raised on an unhealthy diet and they, they don't have much of a say in that. But as far as the parents, you know, you have so much love for your child. You want to raise them in a healthy way. It, you know, your health starts when you're a child, obviously. And, yes, I mean, of course I'd recommend reading my book and also my father's book, Disease Proof Your Child is phenomenal um, and his work is just in general spot on. I, I would say yeah it you, you really have to educate yourself first and, and realize that it can be done it can be convenient um, and there's ways to do it and it can be it can also be very affordable. I think it's getting around any apprehensions or excuses because there really are none when you when you when you take a look at facts, There's no excuses for not taking care of your health. You can make it convenient. It's just learning how to do it. And knowing that we have the resources to do it makes it even more no excuse. Um, And, you know, making it taste delicious, it can absolutely be done. Um, It's just a matter I I even – I expected that people would want to, you know, make sure that it's not too expensive, and so I've even analyzed the cost of – plant foods and let's say making your home cooked meals. And if, you know, frozen is the better option versus fresh, all of that. So making it really, really affordable. Um, And also cooking with your family, making it fun, finding the time to do so on the weekend. It can even just be one night a week on a Sunday night where you make a big pot of soup and freeze it for your whole family. Um, You know, it's, and, you know, have fun with it. You know, one life to live. Let's, let's make, you know, I, when I'm cooking, I dance loud music or I listen to an audio book or I have my friends over and we all cook together. Let's, let's make this, um, an enjoyable journey. So words, it, don't make it if you're talking
2: about a family. It doesn't have to be this tedious situation where either one parent or the other is stuck in the kitchen by themselves trying to get dinner together after a really harassing day at work and everybody else isn't even involved. So that does not make it fun and it doesn't make it a family uh, group thing. So that's really has the opposite effect of making cooking and nutrition fun. But I want to get back to one the thing that you said, because I think this is the biggest excuse that I hear. Well, I really can't eat well because it's too expensive. Now, you did cover that, but maybe we even want to be more specific, because that's the biggest thing. You know, it's just way too expensive. Vegetables are too expensive. Uh, fresh fish or fresh vegetables or fresh meat um, is too expensive. So uh, we, that's part of the reason why we don't eat well.
3: Right. And the I I think it's also important to recognize that health problems and the, the cost of medical bills in this country, having a health problem is devastating and basically pricelessly bad. It's just nobody wants to be in a hospital and paying thousands and thousands of dollars. So that's later on if you're not taking care of yourself, all of that money that goes to medical care. But aside from that, looking at the cost of actual Fruits and vegetables. It's when you when you look at the actual cost and you list it, let's say on a chart like I've done. It's not more expensive at all, and the cost of frozen vegetables they're so affordable. And you can some people are lucky enough to live by farmers markets, and they're so cheap when you go there or local farms. Um, you can buy in bulk on the internet. You can buy lots of like dried fruit and nuts and things like that that are staples and last forever so affordably wholesale online, we've never lived in a more convenient era and ways to get um, really cheap, healthy food. And I love buying frozen vegetables and frozen fruits. They're just as nutrient-dense as fresh. And I cover that why that is the case in the book. Um, what
2: about but, holidays? Because now Thanksgiving is 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 here, and so what do you people always have the excuse? Well, it's the holiday, so I'm going to stuff myself, and then I'll diet for the next two weeks. What do you do on holidays? What do you do for Thanksgiving? Do you stuff yourself, or are you able to moderate your eating, or you know, yes. Yeah. So, so, yeah.
3: There's compromise. Absolutely. You want to be able to enjoy the holidays and, and eat some delicious food. I, I make recipes that are everybody loves. Conventional eaters love. And I've actually got some great recipes on my website. It's, uh, perfect for the holidays. Uh, the, my website's just my name. It's TaliaFurman.com. Um, and it's basically a, a recipe website, but there's recipes in the book as well. And I'm using those. You can make decadent desserts. Um, you sweetening them with dates and fresh fruit, um, and there's just ways to make substitutions, like a, um, a delicious pumpkin pie or blueberry or blackberry pie, and making it absolutely mouthwatering. Taking those conventional recipe, uh, conventional dishes, and make them just help, you know, a little bit healthier. And you don't want to feel sick afterwards too. Um, so there's solutions, absolutely, and there's ways that you don't have to feel deprived at all.
2: Yeah, I think there are ways that I find uh, ways of, like, eliminating sugar. You don't have to eliminate sugar completely, but you can cut down on the sugar. Um, it, it doesn't always have to be all or nothing, so, particularly with desserts. Um, so that you, know, you can modify things. And I think maybe you used that word earlier in the interview. It's not all or nothing that you absolutely can't eat a sweet, but you can modify that sweet by using less sugar. So there are ways to get around it, and obviously in your book you talk about that. Now one of the things you also say is how eating right is good not just for your personal health, which of course is key, but it also will help save the planet. Can you explain that? What do you mean by that?
3: It's incredible how it's not spoke, uh, spoken about in the media or written about too much, but yes, um, factory farming and specifically animal product production, um, it, there's such a demand for it, and the all the pollution, all the air pollution, um, that it's not even just carbon dioxide, it's methane, there's something called black carbon. Um, there's all of these gases that go into the air when it's produced, and in order to feed those animals, right, they need to eat lots of grains, lots of corn, lots of soy. We actually cut down forests in the rainforest just to grow all these crops to feed the animals. um, People don't realize that a lot of uh, climate change and pollution can be contributed to factory farming because there's so much demand around the world. So the more we, we can eat plants versus animals, we're actually... Kind of like reducing that as much as possible is like driving or better than driving, um, you know, an energy efficient car. It's, it's actually incredible how much energy is saved when you eat more plants versus animals. Talia, how old are you? I'm 27.
2: You're 27, so now because we're going to, we have a few more minutes and I just want to, because we started talking about you are not eating well, not overeating but undereating. you were almost anorexic when you were an adolescent so now it's 12, 15 years later How's your health? I mean you've changed not only your own eating habits but you're writing about it now that you're the expert nutritionist, so how's your health in terms of, i uh, assuming you eat what you
4: practice, what yes, you preach
3: I do, I I would say it's Exactly where I want it to be. I'm I'm not perfect all the time. I still, you know, I have a health-minded boyfriend, and we'll go out on my birthday, and we'll still have a nice dessert or something like that. I'm I'm definitely I'm not hardcore. Um, I'm fit. I love to exercise, um, and it shows. I think I found my ideal weight. I don't weigh myself every day. I don't feel anxious. I'm not too skinny. I have a little bit of curves, but it's athletic and I feel like I'm at my ideal weight. I eat very well. I feel vibrant. I don't, I have, don't remember the last time I had uh, uh, the co- uh, cold or the flu. I, I really never get sick. Um, and I, I feel very energetic and ready to do my job and tackle other new projects. Well, and your boyfriend, I assume that's a good
2: relationship because <clears throat> we were talking about really getting rid of the toxic relationships, having good relationships, and that's helpful. So he, too, must follow some of this
3: the, the good nutrition and is in good shape and supports you in what you do? Absolutely. I'm a very lucky girl. He's got all of that and more, and he's very compassionate. Kindness, I'd say empathy is the highest form of intelligence and He's extremely empathetic and supportive of everything, and we help each other grow and learn. It's um, You don't settle for anything less than, than um, you know, what you deserve. What you think you deserve. <laughs> what you think you, you deserve. Yeah, right? You have
2: to feel it, right? I mean, you may deserve the best, but as you said, you have to really appreciate yourself and your body and who you are and and really feel like you deserve it so that you make good choices, not just with food, but as, you're, as you say, also with your uh, well, with your boyfriend or girlfriend or partner, whomever you choose, because that's key as well.
3: Absolutely, it's a form of self-love. When you are feel good about yourself, if somebody isn't treating you well, you have to let them go. It's just um, you'd it's better to be single, and confident, and making good choices for yourself um, than it is to be with the wrong person who isn't treating you right. That's good advice. And if you want more advice from
2: Talia, you can go to her website at taliafuhrman.com, and it's dot com. That's her website. And her book is Love Your Body, Eat Smart, Get Healthy, Find Your Ideal Weight, and Feel Beautiful Inside and Out. It all sounds good to me, and thanks so much for being on the show this morning, Talia.
3: It was a pleasure to be here on my Facebook page. I'm an active blogger. at facebook.com loveyourbody101. So I'm always posting new recipes and uh, nutrition psychology tips. It was a pleasure
2: to be here. Great talking to you. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute.
5: Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week.
0: It's time to take a new look at some of life's changing moments. It's time to listen to an expert who has been there and can provide insight through experience, studies, and enlightening guests. Tune in to Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets, Host Lindsay Levinson takes a look at relationships, parenting, health and wellness, divorce, depression, sexuality, philanthropy, and mental health. You'll look at everything you know in a different way. Illuminating now, Lindsay's Life Secrets airs Wednesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety.
1: Do you want to know what's really going on these days? each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time.
0: If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
5: Are you ready for an anything-goes, hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
1: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and we're back. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Noel Nelson. Dr. Nelson is the author of 12 books including Got a Bad Boss, Make More Money by Making Your Employees Happy, uh The Power of I'm pre- sorry, I have
4: to stop you. That is incorrect. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, the, title, the subtitle is Work That Boss to Get What You Want at Work.
2: Oh, oh okay, then they've got that wrong. Got a bad yeah, boss. Well, well, then we're going to repeat it twice so everybody yeah. knows. Got You're a bad... confusing two different books. Oh, okay. <laughs> We've melded them into one. Got, yeah. a, bad, got a bad boss. And most people do have a bad boss at some time in their life. Work that boss to get what you want at work. So, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Noel Nelson. Alright, we can, I think we've established the fact that probably most of us in our lifetime and in our work history have a bad boss. So, this you're going to tell us how to work that boss to get what we want at work because most people can't quit their jobs. They want to quit their jobs. They they're uncomfortable with their boss. They they don't get along with their boss, but they have to stay there. So what do they do? This is what we're going to. This is you're going to give us the solution to that. What do we do? How do we work that boss?
4: Well, the, f- the first thing is to understand that. Your boss isn't going to change just because you're having an unhappy experience. And that for the most part, trying to tell your boss how miserable he or she is managing uh, you know, the workplace is not going to work because, quite frankly, if they were open to suggestion and so forth, they'd be doing it. So that's the first thing to recognize, Catherine, is that do not expect your boss to change, but What you can change very, very aptly is your attitude towards your boss and how you behave towards him or her.
2: So how do we change our attitude? Because as a social worker, I find changing attitudes, particularly towards your boss, is not an easy thing to do. I mean, you sort of get into this mindset, and you're, you complain to your girlfriends, you complain to your coworkers or your boyfriends and whoever, and to really sit down and change that attitude, how do you begin to do that?
4: You do it by, instead of looking at your boss just as my boss, which is a, painful experience for you, is instead start to think of your boss as someone you can be an ally to. In other words, your boss is the roadmap to your success. Therefore, you need to start looking at your boss as someone to whom you can have value. Because once you make yourself valuable to your boss, then he or she is going to be much more willing to provide you with whatever you need. So that's the attitude shift. It's to start to see yourself as an ally, not an enemy, not a victim, not any of those things, as you so aptly pointed out, Catherine, that we do around the water cooler. What do we do if we start off on the wrong foot? I mean, how do
2: we, and because that's why, I mean, you're the expert, and I want to get real specific about this. Like, you have been complaining, and you have been crying and screaming about your boss and you are, read your book, for instance, and you say, okay, now I have to change my attitude. I mean, can you, how do, is it, do you, how do you do that? I mean, does your, obviously your boss is going to realize there's some attitude change, which is a good thing. Um, or have we already dug ourselves into a hole and we can't do anything about it?
4: Oh, we can always do something about it. Let's get really specific, Catherine. Let's take a very common kind of boss, okay? Let's take the finger-pointer-blaming kind of boss, all right? The one that uh, when anything goes the least bit wrong, just literally whirls upon the employees and starts lambasting blame all over the place, right? We've all had one of those. Well, usually what you've done, started off on the wrong foot, is you duck and run for cover, or you hide or you go you just sort of you know try to weather it and, and, and head bowed and and feeling awful like a victim and so forth and almost crouching beneath your desk okay so now what you're going to do is something quite quite different and at first your boss will not even notice that you're doing anything different they're usually oblivious but next time your boss starts one of these blame, tirades, is you're just going to stand there. You're not going to move. You're not going to bow your head. You're going to continue to look them in the eye. You're not going to nod. You're not going to do anything. You just stand there. You practice being a Zen master. And when your boss winds down, because they always do, you simply say in your most neutral, calm voice, let me see what I can do about that, and walk away. Now, at first, your boss doesn't have a clue what's going on. They think it's just some variation of same old. But if you actually do that and come back with a suggestion, an idea, or a, just even a piece, a beginning piece of the problem solved, the first few times they're just going to shrug it off and pay no, not much attention. But if you persist with that very distinct behavioral and attitude change, eventually they will start looking at you as a problem solver, and now you have value. That's what we're looking at, Catherine, is how to make yourself valuable to your boss. That's working your boss.
2: Okay. So then, as you point out in the book, you become that ambitious employee. Is that it? You're the one who's out there and is going to resolve and solve the problems for your boss and make your boss look good, which obviously is what you want to do. Um, But then you have a whole list of other types of of bosses. So I want to Tackle some of those, too, because, okay, that's the finger-pointing boss, the one who's going to blame you all the time. Well, uh, what, what about the incompetent boss? I mean, because I, I have God. found that the most difficult one, because you know this guy or gal is really incompetent, and it's kind of like, so what are we going to do? Because they, they, they're just not up to the task, the boss.
4: That is correct. Well, I talk a lot in the book about finding out what your boss's secret desire is and what his or her secret fear is. Because once you sort those out, you can become that ally, that valuable person to your boss. And with the incompetent boss, the secret desire is to avoid responsibility. And the incompetent boss's secret fear is that their cover will get blown. And they'll be revealed as the lazy and irresponsible individual that it is, they, they are. So the secret, Catherine, to working your incompetent boss is to make him or her look competent. See, that's the thing. You can't, you can't change them, but you can certainly alter what's going on around them. So, for example, incompetent boss's classic maneuver is to toss more stuff at you than you, than you can possibly deal with, okay? You've already got a, a desk or a workspace piled high. And what you do very quickly is say, well, great, love to do this. Now, which of your other projects, tasks, whatever, would you like me to back burner? And the response is going to be, well, well, none of them. I want you to do all of them. And they say, yes, I understand that. So in order for all of them to get done – this would probably be best delegated to so-and-so or to this department or done in two weeks. In other words, you become the manager of your work because your incompetent manager can't. So they'll either get annoyed with you, in which case they'll start bugging somebody else with their ridiculous demands, or they will say, yeah, do whatever you want Yes. Yeah, because they don't know how. And you will start to manage your workflow effectively. Yeah. So if you do it well,
2: the way you're describing it, they'll probably want to let you manage it, right? I mean, is that oh, yeah. yeah? And so and that's when you ask
4: for the promotion or the more money or the whatever.
2: Because yeah. they, then they become afraid that they're going to lose you. Correct. Right. You do. have
4: become valuable. That's the key to this whole thing. I could have called the book "Be Valuable to Your Boss." We're yeah. the same thing.
2: <laughs> Be value. Make that person look competent. Um, I guess then what you're saying is really it's important. Um, you know, uh, people are going to read your book after they've gotten themselves into trouble, probably. But do it beforehand. Kind of a preemptive strike. It would seem to me like once you get a job, try to evaluate this boss in the first two or three weeks or month or whatever, and see what kind of a boss they are, as you describe in the book, the different categories, and then. Go from there, right from the
4: beginning, you can take this kind of, pro- not kind of, but this positive approach. It is the best if you can take it from the beginning. But you brought up such a valid point, Catherine, which is an awful lot of people have started off on the wrong foot, and they, and they frankly come to the book in desperate straits. It's like, oh, eek, now what do I do? You can start at any point. You can have been with the same boss for five years and start. Now, they will be confused. Or they will ignore it for longer because it's a, it's a change, and most, most bosses don't like that, bad bosses, that is. So it may take longer, but you can actually start from any point. What about this... Dr. Nelson, because sometimes you, as you say, okay, you can be with a boss for five
2: years, and as you, as we both know, things do change. And this boss may have started out pretty well, and things were going smoothly. But then, say something happens in their life—they get sick, or their family sick, or they, you know, have uh, financial problems—and they begin to change. So you have to, don't you, have to be aware of that as well, so that you can kind of, you know, not get into a situation where you get angry or disappointed or uh, in this boss who seemingly has been pretty good for the first, say, two or three years?
4: Well, here's the thing. is that If you're working your boss in the ways I suggest, a good boss will only get better. In other words, it, it, it's, it's treating someone like an ally and really enthusiastically working towards their success is always going to make you more valuable, no matter where the boss is at. But I think it's so important. It's important in all relationships. I know you're well aware of this, Catherine, is consider the source. Look at where the boss might be coming from, and it's not you. Unless you've done, you as the employee, unless you've done something that you know is wrong or bad, okay? You messed up a project, you know you did, okay, that's on you. But if you know that you're doing your job, very well that you're working at the same level you've always worked and your boss suddenly gets weird, then it's not you. And that's where compassion has to kick in. What do you
2: say about people who go on? Because I don't think this is a good idea. Also, from my perspective as a social worker, we tend to, when we start getting angry with the boss and not doing what you're suggesting, we try to get allies within the, within our work, situation, to agree with us that this guy or this gal is bad and they're mean or they're incompetent or um, all of those things that you describe. And I want to talk about a couple of the other categories, but that's really not a good
4: thing to do either. That's a ridiculous thing to do. All you're going to do is, you know, split the the department into camps. Work is going to decrease. Productivity is going to decrease. Upper management is going to start looking at the department thinking, you know, what's wrong in there? And they're probably not going to think it's the boss. They're a downhill slide. That's that's not very good strategy. Yeah. What about the sexist?
2: The sexist I think you're describing, the sexist boss. I mean, how do you overcome what do you
4: do with that? Or with well, him? The, I'm the, saying, the, the, him. well it's it's either one frankly yeah. but more commonly a him. Um and actually the the title is uh more um if you will up up close and personal, it's sexist horny pig boss. In other words, <laughs> We're not just looking at a boss who uh, hasn't understood yet that men and women are equal in the workplace, but who is sexually creating a hostile work environment. In other words, is making inappropriate advances, be they in word or uh, behavior or touch. And so what you do there is very, very different from how to... Deal with the other types of bosses because with this particular boss, you are not going to manage to make yourself valuable in in the way that he or she wants. You are not going to sleep with him or her. You're not. It's it's just not who you are, not what you want, etc. But you want to be able to at least do your work properly. And so what you recognize is that the secret desire of a sexist, horny pig boss, male or female, is to be powerful and courageous. And their secret fear, regardless of their gender, is that they are impotent, meaning not powerful anywhere. So the secret to working a sexist, horny pig boss is don't buy into their bad behavior. And the first line of defense is, be bold. And what do I mean by that is, okay, so your sexist 20 pig boss is hovering over your shoulder, and it's obvious that he, probably in this case, that he is staring down your blouse and you're probably a she, right? Right. So what you do is, you, as if you had seen a mouse. You go, eek, and you roll your chair back quickly and stand up and go, oh, did you see that? Did you see that? It was a cockroach or it was a spider or whatever you want to choose depending on your environment. And your boss is going to be, of course, have a mashed toe. But beyond that, it's like, that wasn't fun for him. That wasn't fun. So what you do is you be bold, not in... In uh, accusing or confronting your boss, that won't work. But in your reaction, and often you can do a very silly, exaggerated reaction, like the eek as if you'd seen a spider or a bug. Or if you're a male and you're, you know, it's a, it's a female boss and you're leaning over your desk and you and the boss is way too close to your rear end and that kind of thing, once you can jump to the side, and go, oh, you uh, you wanted to look at that? Oh, please let me show it to you. So you boldly remove yourself, and you you speak loudly, because abusers want secrecy, always. Abusers don't do it out in public. They want to catch you in those moments when nobody else is looking, because that's part of the kick, if you will. Yeah, trying to create these...
2: Somewhat intimate moments and keep them right. a secret. So you absolutely do not do that, and you do not no. reward their behavior. That no. right. absolutely do not reward their behavior, and no. they stay away from you. Well, they go but, on because to...
4: you're annoying? You're not fun. You're not playing their dirty
2: game. Sexist, horny, pig, boss. Are there a <laughs> lot of <laughs> in your experience? Are there a lot of them out there? And can you give an example,
4: like a specific, you know,
2: case history kind
4: of example? Uh, well, quite frankly, the one I gave you with looking down the blouse is a yeah. case history. Okay. That's um, but I'd like to give you one that was the opposite. Because you remember what you mentioned, Catherine, earlier, that sometimes a boss starts out as a good boss and then devolves for one reason or another? Um, as you know, I'm a trial consultant, so I work in uh, lawsuits all the time. And there was a lawsuit where a manager was being accused of harassment. And there's a process called discovery in the law where you go through who's saying what about whom kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And what it turned out is that the manager, as he settled into his role, would commonly put his arm around the shoulder of anyone, male, female, didn't matter to him, and sort of pat them on the side of the shoulder. And the women in the office found that offensive. Now, what they didn't know is the manager came from a sports background, All male, sports background, and he commonly did that with his team back when he was a a coach in the sports field and had no clue that he was being inappropriate. So you do sometimes, and I'll say, you can really feel the difference because this guy never did any of the leering, did it publicly. You know, he he wouldn't seek out uh, quiet, private places to stick his arm around somebody, that kind of thing. So one does want to be aware because we are an increasingly aware uh, population about matters of sexual harassment. You do want to be aware. And if it is the kind of boss like this manager who really wasn't the harasser, the minute you do it with single big bold, they will jump back and go, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Because they, they really didn't mean it. Yeah. So, so there's I mean, you're yeah, saying context, context is really important
2: and be aware absolutely. of that. That's a good example because I think sometimes now we're so hyper aware of this that, as you say, you know, that we don't really take it, uh, we take it out of context and it right. really, you know, in this case as you described it, it wasn't really meaningful in terms of a sexist, horny, pig oh. boss. This is not who this guy was. Oh. There is, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, What about the guy, and you talk about this, the favoritism boss, what, the boss who just always seems to favor one or two people and you're not one of them?
4: (laughs) Oh, and that can be so painful, being on the, the outside of things. Well, once again, we're going to go to the secret desire of a favoritism boss, which is to be admired by everyone, everywhere, all of the time. And their secret fear is the flip side, that they're not good enough for their job, as a person, as a boss, as anything. So the secret to working your favoritism boss, even when you're not one of the favorites, is to make that boss feel important. And the quickest, easiest way to make a favoritism boss feel important is ask him or her, get them, directly or indirectly, to be your mentor. You will maybe never become a favorite, but you will amp their feeling of being important, so they'll want to keep you around, and that is how you become valuable. See, that's really important because I think that maybe, and I don't know if it's intuitive, but
2: sometimes when that happens, you re- one looks to themselves and says, well, what's wrong with me and why can't I behave more like this other employee because then he or she, my boss, will like me or, you know, have more respect for me and kind of take, you know, blame yourself for not being the favorite. So you're really, right. yeah.
4: That no, has nothing to do with you. Your boss is an idiot. He's, he's playing favorites as a stupid game. And it's purely, though, in service of that need, and, it, and it's not a pretty need, to feel important no matter what. So you don't try to change yourself. You simply engage that boss in a way that makes him or her feel important and making them into a mentor. In other words, valuing whatever little bit of advice, whatever, you know, if they give you a project, oh, I'm so grateful for this project. You've really challenged me, and I feel that I can, you know, I'm growing from your input. Thank you. Even if it's all so much blah, blah, blah. But important to do, I mean, you really have to have a slight, I mean,
2: you do need to read your book because you kind of have to have this really psychologically, you have to be able to analyze the intentions given all these different types of bosses so that you can respond in the way you've been talking, we've been talking about during this uh, interview, but, uh, and this isn't, this is just a few of them, there are still more categories of, of bosses.
4: The, you talk about the, what is the, who is the ghost boss? What does that mean? The ghost boss is very perplexing for employees because, on the one hand, the ghost boss—oh dear, ghost boss—can feel very relaxing. Ghost boss is just plain not there. Not necessarily physically. Physically, they may be there, but they're just not available. They're—they're like a ghost. It's not that they're mean or nasty. They're usually not. Frankly, they should never have been put in that position. Uh, They don't know how to manage. They know they don't know how to manage, which is where they're different from the incompetent boss. And so they just want to stay away from it. And often they have something else that they want to be doing. Um, A lot of the ghost bosses are highly skilled technological people who've been moved into a management position where they have no business being, and they want to get right back to their technology, whatever it is. Uh, Some of them are frankly spoiled brats who were elevated because their daddy gave money or did whatever, and they really want to be on the golf course. But either way, more common is a technologically focused one, but either way, they Want to manage? They don't know how to manage, and they just don't want to be there. Now, that seems relaxing, but the problem is, you as the employee need to get things done. You need direction, and you're not going to get it. So, basically, what you need to do is become your own boss. Define your work. Verify that that whatever you've defined as your work, your you know piece of the puzzle, is it okay by them. Do your best, then. Um, uh, tabulate your results, always you know, record your results, go back to your boss say, this is what I accomplished on this, uh, you know, are we okay with all this? And do it written in front of them, whether you write on a tablet or on a notepad, doesn't make any difference. Do it written in front of them so that they've, in a sense, signed off on what you do and then signed off on the fact that you did it. Now you are managing your own work, but with their agreement and approval, even if it's extremely distant.
2: Do you think there are any or one of these bosses that you would say, if you had to rank them, that's the most difficult to deal with, or the most, well, I'll, that's it. That's the question. Do you think, or are they all? They're just similar, and it depends on your own personality. Some people can handle, depending on what the employee's personality is, can handle one or the other better.
4: You know. Well, and that's why I go through. In other words, there are there are only seven, frankly, bosses types of bosses that that pretty much everybody falls into, and there are six kinds of employees that any employee that we will fall into. So once you know what your employee type is, then I frankly, in the book, lay out grids. If, in other words, if you're the, the uh, pleaser employee, here's how to deal with an incompetent boss, a ghost boss, et cetera, et cetera, because it is different. You're right. We are all different, Catherine, and you can't expect um, a pleaser employee to respond the same way that a ambitious employee would. So, if you want to find, we only
2: have a minute left. So, if you want to find out what kind of an employee you are, go buy the book. Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. But also, Doctor Nelson, what website can we go to, obviously, to uh, maybe read an excerpt from the book, find out more about what you're doing? Um, Can you give us a website or two? It's
4: NoelNelson.com, and that's it. That's it, just get... I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, and those are easy. They're under Got a Bad Boss.
2: Great. Well,
4: yep. I, yeah, I, this has
2: been uh, really informative. Uh, I, I really appreciate you being on the show today, and I think this is real practical advice for most of us because most of us are out there in the workforce and are really confronted with all of these categories that you described, and I think people are going to have to. If you want to find out your employee type, because we really didn't cover that, then uh, buy the book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. Dr. Noel Nelson, Ph.D., and uh, she's author of Got a Bad Boss, Work That Boss to Get What You Want at Work. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Catherine. You are listening, or you have been listening, to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.